Just this past October, our wonderful sponsor, the Affordable Art Fair, celebrated their 20th anniversary in style, back where it all began in Battersea Park in London. And wow, what a selection of artworks they had on view, from prints, paintings, sculptures and ceramics, and a lot of women, I may add. If you missed out on this year's edition, or like me, are still dreaming about that perfect artwork that got away, then do not worry. Head online to browse the same hand-picked selection of emerging and established living artists as you'd find at the fair. Whether you're looking to purchase your very first piece or perhaps it's that last blank spot on your walls, there's a wealth of advice and inspiration on everything from interior design to art buying trends to help you make that all-important art buying decision. Discover the joy of collecting art on affordableartfair.com and thank you to our sponsor, the Affordable Art Fair, for making this podcast possible. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015 which celebrates female artists on a daily basis ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm very excited to say that my guest today is Joanna Moorhead, a brilliant writer and journalist for The Guardian and The Times, specialising in arts and families. But she is also the long-lost cousin, biographer and world expert on one of the greatest surrealist painters ever to exist. Leonora Carrington, the British-born painter known for her fantastical and dreamlike works who fled to Mexico during World War II and stayed there until her death in 2011. In 2017, Joanna published the book The Surreal Life of Leonora Carrington, an extensive biography of the artist and memoir of her own relationship with Leonora. She continues to broadcast and write widely on her and has helped with numerous recent Leonora Carrington exhibitions in the UK, including the major show at Tate Liverpool in 2015. And Joanna also curated the exhibition at Pallant House Gallery in 2010. Welcome, Joanna. It's so fantastic to have you on the podcast today. How are you doing? Thanks, Katie. That's a very kind introduction. Thank you. <laughs> Joanna, from my description of the work that you have done, it seems like you've been studying Leonora for a lifetime. Yet I know that this is not the case. Tell us, how did Leonora Carrington come into your life? Well, I suppose uh, Leonora first came into my life when I was probably a teenager. And I was aware of this character in my family who was a bit of a ghost, really. And she was somebody who was a bit of a black sheep in our family. There'd been some kind of scandal. Her name, she wasn't somebody who was sort of welcomed or whose, whose memory was regarded with much kind of uh, enthusiasm, you might say. So she disappeared. Something had happened. Something big had happened. Something scandalous had happened. And she'd gone. And my grandmother, who I was very close to, who was Leonora's aunt, uh, I attempted to get her to tell me the story, but Granny completely closed up. There was no way she was going to tell me this story. It was something, uh, you know, really bad that we didn't talk about. And the other thing to say was that nobody ever called her Leonora in our family. The family name for her was Prim. 
So there was a, this mysterious prim and something big had happened and off she'd gone. And I guess the only two things that I did glean about her through my teenage years, and I was genuinely interested. I mean, it's I'm a journalist. I was going on to Absolutely. become a journalist. And it's clearly <laughs> a good story, isn't it? Uh, but the two things I did glean were that art was involved in her story and Mexico was involved in her story. And then fast forward to several decades later, I'm in my early 40s. I'm by then the mother of four daughters and a um, another mother from my children's school had a party. I mean, really nothing to do with art. You know, it was just a party for mums in the neighbourhood. And so, of course, I went to this party and there was one woman there who wasn't part of our group. And I chatted to her and she turned out to be a Mexican art historian. I've no idea how she was at my friend's party. And we chatted, but I didn't know very much about Mexico or art in Mexico. And we'd almost finished the conversation. And then I remembered this character from my past. And I remembered art, Mexico, they were the two things I knew about Prim. So I said to this woman, listen, I'm sure you will n not in a million years have heard of my dad's cousin. But I said, my father's cousin disappeared many years ago. I'm pretty sure she went to Mexico. I'm pretty sure art is a big part of her story. I remember saying to this woman, she may even be dead. And this woman wasn't, I suppose, all that interested, didn't think it was very likely that she would have heard of my father's cousin in all the millions of people who live in Mexico. Um, and then I said her name and I had to remember her name because, as I told you, we called her Prim in our family. So I had to remember that her name was Leonora. I knew her surname, obviously, very well. So I said her name was Leonora Carrington. And this woman, who hadn't been so interested in the story, suddenly was incredibly interested in the story um, and said, didn't you know that... Leonora Carrington is the most famous artist alive today in Mexico. You know, if she's your cousin, you must go and find her. Oh, my God. So, I mean, what was your immediate reaction? Like, What did you do? Well, I was fascinated. And uh, when I got home that night, although it was late, I looked her up online. I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous. And art historians have sometimes said to me, and when my book came out, people said, surely she must have known that somebody in the art history world as famous as Leonora Carrington. But... All I can say is, if you leave your family in the way Leonora did, then uh, however famous and however big you become in another world, in her case, the art world, that's not what you're remembered for in your family. I mean, I really didn't know the detail of her story. Oh my and God. I was amazed when I found it out, first of all, online and then when I met her. Did you go to Mexico to see her then immediately? Well, not immediately, but... Uh, so the story of my relationship with Leonora, I often describe it like that. It's completely organic. Yeah. I've never planned any of it at all, really. And yet, time after time, things come along into my life. And that's how it was from the start. And then one day, I was sitting here in my study, opened my emails, and there was, out of the blue, an email inviting me to Mexico inviting me to the opening of a hotel in Cancun. Well, I don't write about travel. Um, and there's no way I could have justified going to Mexico. But of course, I absolutely wanted to go because I wanted to go to meet Leonora. I got in touch with the people who were asking me and I said, well, I'd love to go to the opening of the hotel in Cancun, but I really want to go to Mexico City. So if you'll fly me via Mexico City, then I'll go and I want a week in Mexico City. And they said, oh, no, no, we can't do that. And about a week later, I got another call. So they said, actually, we've had a rethink. If you'll come, we'll send you via Mexico City. So that was it. I had my ticket. So, um, oh, I, my gosh. I mean, it's just it's the most remarkable, like most remarkable story ever. And, and her work, because obviously this was 2006. Were you able to access work by her on Google search or anything? Yes. I mean, her, her work came up as I was looking online. But, I mean, 
It was her I was interested in. Of course, her work is her. Some of her paintings, I think probably from the very beginning, I could see connections to our family. Mm. And I and some of her paintings are very easy to read. I mean, there's one called Green Tea, which shows her sort of swaddled, closed up, constricted, um, uh, almost like mummified. Mm. And it's set against the landscape of what would have been the gardens of her family home. And that's quite easy to read. I mean, that's clearly showing how restricted she felt in the family in which yeah. she found herself. But other, in that earliest time when I was looking online, I mean, other paintings, I had no idea what they were about. And of course, that was the narrative in our family. You know, Prim was mad. She'd gone away. She'd done this terrible thing. She cut herself off from our family. And now she painted completely mad paintings that none of us had a clue what they were about. That was the the story. Oh my gosh! I mean, we'll we'll get into it sort of later on. But first, I want to start at the beginning um, to uncover who Leonora Carrington really was and why she escaped. You know, her family. This crazy story. So she was born in Lancashire, where your family are from, in 1917. The only girl in her family with three brothers. Tell us about her childhood. What was she like as a child, and where did she grow up? Well, she grew up largely in a very big, grand Gothic mansion called Crookie Hall in Lancashire enormously wealthy parents. Harold was a textile mill owner and he'd become very rich very fast. So Crookie was a large estate, a very big kind of gothic house and it must have really fired her imagination as a place to grow up and her paintings many years later are reflecting what she saw and what she knew in that childhood. Um, As the only girl, I think that in the Carrington family there were very traditional expectations of the boys um, and very different expectations of her as a girl. And I think she resented that from the start. So her brothers uh, went away to boarding school. She was educated at home by a governess until she was probably about uh, 10 or 11. Which must have been such a sort of lonely time for her then. Really lonely time. And she really wanted to be out there doing the things that her brothers were doing. Mm. Um, So I think from the start, there was a sense for her of, of being excluded Um, being on the outside. She was very interested, though, in art. And I mean, she, the way she described it to me many years later, she didn't become an artist. She always was an artist. An artist was what she was from her earliest years. Do you think she sort of channeled these feelings of exclusion and, I guess, abandonment even in art? What was she doing as a child? Well, she was, uh, she was obviously, you know, in growing up in this house. Uh, I think she was quite close to her mother, Mm. Maury. Um, Not so close to her father, Harold. Did he have expectations of her? Well, I think that his expectations of her were very low. I mean, I think that what both of her parents hoped for and expected were that she would uh, marry, ideally, a Catholic aristocrat. The thing about the Carringtons were that they were nouveau riche, and so they were incredibly wealthy, but they didn't have the pedigree going back the way that would put them into the grandest Mm. um, drawing rooms of England. So Leonora, the only daughter, the expectations for her were all about marrying well. So she was sent away to boarding school when she was probably when she was about 11. And she went to two boarding schools, two convents, but she was expelled from both of them. So she was clearly quite a rebellious child. She was rebellious, but in a very sort of natural way. I mean, she just didn't fit in. Mm. She, She wasn't all through her life. One of the consistent things about Leonora was that she was 
It wasn't something she tried not to fit in. She just didn't fit in. Yeah. Like she told me about a day when um, she went down to breakfast wearing her shoes on the wrong feet and the, the, <laughs> the nun said, uh, oh, Leonora Carrington, that's so like you. Uh, you, you know, you, you'll never do the thing that's expected of you. You never do yeah. the thing. But she said to me when she was telling me this story, you know, I wasn't trying to be different. I just got the shoes on my wrong feet. Yeah. You know, she wasn't trying to be different. She just genuinely was different. But then art must have been such a sort of saviour for her because I know that when she was a teenager, she saw works of Hieronymus Bosch and was completely inspired by that. Do you think that kind of really made an impact on her? Really did make an impact on her. So she'd been expelled from these two boarding schools <laughs> and then her parents kind of gave up on that kind of conventional education and sent her to finishing schools in Europe. So she ended up at, I think, about 15 in Florence. And definitely that was a really important moment for her to find herself in Florence and to find herself looking at the amazing work in the cradle of the Renaissance and uh, the colours that she saw there. And in many ways, the style of painting, you can see echoes of that right through her life. So she was at all these finishing schools, yet she just wanted to be an artist. What sort of caused her to actually then leave your family? I mean, did she have a terrible relationship with her parents? I mean, what happened? Well, she definitely had a very difficult relationship with her father. I think her mother tried to be supportive. Um, when she was about 15 years old, they'd sent her to a couple of finishing schools. And the next thing was that she was going to go to London and come out as a debutante um, and be, she described it many years later to me, it was a cattle market. Basically, it was all about girls looking a certain way, going and being presented to the king at court, meeting uh, eligible young men at balls and finding the eligible young man who they would marry. So Leonora, I mean, she was terribly young. She was 15 and the pressures must have been enormous yeah. on her in the, at that time. But she didn't meet uh, anybody, unsurprisingly, because <laughs> of course she wasn't looking yeah. for a man. Um, and after the second year, she persuaded her parents. This was a very clever thing she did, actually. She somehow persuaded them to let her stay in London, yeah, which they must have thought was a bad idea. But I think they really believed that eventually she would get married. So she persuaded them to let her stay in London, um, living in Kensington, and she uh, enrolled at a, a very small art school run by Amade Osenfant, the French Cubist artist. So she moves to London. Is she sort of still getting on with her parents at this point? I think that uh, relations were probably, you know, quite strained. Um, but I think that her mother always at some level admired her mm. for, I mean, her mother's background was that she was a doctor's daughter from Ireland. And she'd done this one extraordinary thing in her life, which was to marry this Protestant. She was Catholic and then be transported to this new life as the richest woman in Lancashire. So that took a bit of kind of strength of character as well. But what about her father? Do you think she was afraid to say what she actually wanted to do? I think part of the key to their relationship was Harold Carrington was a very powerful man. He had three sons who I think did as they were told. He ran these large mills and everybody in the mills did as they were told. <laughs> and the one person he would have completely expected to do as she was told was his only daughter. And she was the one person who was absolutely not doing as she was told by him. So in, in 1935, age just, you know, 17, she moves to London. What kind of art was she making at this time? And also, was she aware of the Surrealists? 1936 was the year of the big Surrealist exhibition in London, the first international exhibition of Surrealism in London. So the first time that the Surrealists had really, you know, put out their stall in London. Mm. So that was a very important moment for Surrealism. And I don't think that there's any, uh, we don't know for sure that Leonora went to the exhibition or how much she engaged with it. But I think it's unthinkable that she didn't have something to do with it and the one thing we do know 
is that her mother, Maury, bought her a copy of a book about surrealism. I think she was fascinated by it from the start and it in particular introduced her to the work of an artist who was going to be very important to everything that happened next and that was Max Ernst. And so how did they meet? Because obviously this kind of, I mean, I I can't imagine what it did to her parents in terms of, you know, shocking man who was, I think he was 46, she was kind of 18 or 20 at the time. How did they meet? They met at a dinner party in 1937. Um, The dinner party was held by Erno Goldfinger, the architect, and his wife Ursula. And they had a supper party because Erno's great friend, Max Ernst, was in London for the first ever solo show of his work in London. And they decided to invite Ursula's friend from art school because Ursula was also at the Enfants Art School with Leonora. And Leonora, many years later, told me about the pouring of the champagne. The champagne, you know, as it often does, bubbled up over the top. Um, And Max put his finger into the champagne to stop champagne bubbles going over the top. And Leonora copied him and their eyes met over the... So it's a very charged moment. And I don't think it was long before the two of them were lovers. Oh, my gosh. And so how did her family react to this? Very, very badly. Um, They must have been furious. (laughs) it, It was so not what they Mm. wanted for their only daughter. So in Lancashire, a few, I don't know, weeks probably later, um, Harold Carrington would have got news that their daughter was now effectively living with a 46-year-old, married and previously divorced, and he was now married to a new wife, and he was living with her in Paris. And he'd just come over to London, you see, for his exhibition. And now he'd fallen in love with Leonora, and they were effectively living together in London. Oh, my gosh. So how did her parents react to her it? Her parents were shocked, I'm sure, and her father was really incandescent. This was just totally not what the family wanted for Leonora. So Harold Carrington reacted very badly and actually tried to get Max Ernst um, arrested and possibly sent back to Germany, a Germany he left because of Hitler. Oh, my gosh. So he wasn't... Max Ernst wasn't somebody who... You know, it was very safe to to send back to Germany from his point of view. Uh, So Roland Penrose has discovered that um, that there's basically an arrest warrant been issued now for (gasps) Max Ernst. So really, you know, really dire straits for Max Ernst. And uh, so Roland comes up with an idea that's going to save them, which is uh, Roland's brother has a house in Cornwall. So he says to Leonore and Max, they need to disappear. They need to leave London fast. So they headed off down there and they were joined by various other surrealists. And they had this uh, rather wonderful kind of wonderful few weeks in Cornwall. And uh, so there was Leonore and Max, obviously, Lee Miller and Roland Penrose. Um, Eileen Agar was there. Man Ray was there. Henry Moore actually called in for lunch one day. (laughs) So this uh, surrealism never became a massive art movement in Britain. I mean, it had this moment in 1936 when the exhibition, when the international uh, exhibition happened. And I think that a big reason why surrealism didn't become huge in the UK was because of the Second World War. So this um, holiday that happened because of Leonora and Max is kind of sometimes spoken of art historically as the biggest gathering there ever was of these kind of 
significant uh, surrealists on British soil. Incredible. And Eileen Agar described a day when Lee Miller was having a bath and she says something, there's a throwaway line like, uh, and there wasn't room for all of us in the bathtub. <laughs> so you get a sense. And if, yeah. you, if you see Lee Miller's uh, photographs, Lee Miller documented this holiday and you get a real flavour of how these were people who were just living in a different way, in a very different way from the way Leonora had ever lived. And do you think this is the first time as well that Leonora felt like she fit in with something? That's exactly what I think, yeah. Mm. I think that she, uh, for the first time in her life, felt like she'd met kindred spirits. Yeah. And that these were people who she understood and who understood her. And that changed everything for her because she'd known, she'd grown up in this family. She'd known she didn't fit in. She'd felt constricted and restricted and yeah. known that she had this big life to lead, but she didn't know how she was going to do it. And then first meeting Max... But, and then this holiday in Cornwall just really gave her that sense of there is another world out here and I can be part of it. Well, because then in 1937, she then moves to Paris. Yes. And before that, she fell out with her family. <gasps> so what happened there? Well, after the holiday finished, Max went fairly quickly back to Paris where he was safe because it wasn't safe in London for him. Harold on his case. <laughs> exactly. And the Metropolitan Police are chasing him. Uh, Leonora, meanwhile, went back to Lancashire to see her parents and it was on that return to uh, the house where they were living, which was um, in the Lake District. And it was there that she had her final showdown with her father. And she basically told him, he obviously knew she was with Max Ernst, and he, she told him that she was going to live with Max in Paris. And he said if she did that, she wouldn't be welcome in her family anymore. And he also said that she would die penniless and in a garret because that's what happened to artists. He was presenting her really with the choice that she very starkly had at this point you know she'd been born into this fabulously privileged family and as they would see it the Carringtons would see it she had everything waiting for yeah. her but she was presented at that moment with this very stark choice she knew in her heart that she wasn't going to be the person she felt she'd been born to be and he was saying to her if you take this path and you go off and live in Paris you are not going to be part of our family and she didn't for a nanosecond think you know should I leave all this she never by the way saw her father again from the time of that row uh, in 1937 they never met again her father died oh in, the, uh, in, in, in the 50s bearing in mind she's 20 years old I mean, it's extraordinary. It's, it's completely extraordinary to think that someone of that age would have such a kind of determination. I mean, she clearly was this very forceful figure, but also Paris at that time, it must have been incredible and incredible for her because it was the height of surrealism. You know, everyone was hanging out there. It just would have been amazing. And it's just so incredible to think that actually she would have found her place. Of course, it's, it's heartbreaking that her family would kind of disown her in that way. But... I kind of sympathise with her in a way that, you know, go and sort of chase that dream, go to Paris and become that artist who you've always wanted to. So kind of what was she then, did she then start creating surrealist artwork? I think the really important thing Leonora was doing at that moment was not so much creating art, I think she was doing some painting, but I think the most important thing she was doing was learning how artists live. I think she was learning about the connection between discussing ideas and then them having a life as a piece of art. Um, and I think she was learning about how artists support one another and about how the ideas swirl around and then how they become artworks. Because I think much later in Mexico, she puts some of those same ideas about how you have a circle of artists who you're close to and connected to and how that 
impacts on your art and helps you to create art. But I'm interested also to know, because the Surrealists have also been known to be actually quite a kind of misogynistic um, movement as well and group of artists. How was it for her being an artist and actually being much younger than everyone else? I mean, she's 20. Was she taking seriously? I don't think she honestly cared what they thought of her. I mean, I know she didn't. She just didn't care what they thought of her. Of course, they were much older. And of course, they did know a lot more. I mean, she she used to say, I got my real education from Max. She used to say, the nuns didn't educate me. They diseducated me. Everything really that happened to Leonora was sheer force of personality. Mm. She wasn't a muse. She wasn't somebody who really cared ever what anybody else thought of her. She was incredibly determined. She had an incredibly strong sense of self at the very core of her. And you see that time and again in her story. So I suppose that the thing that you see in Leonora is how important it is for women to self-define and that made her such a strong character. Well, I think you see it as well in her self-portrait in Of the Dawn Horse, which is from 1937 to 38, because of this this kind of very, she's sitting on this throne, this powerful chair. She has this kind of really intense stare. I mean, she knows, almost just looking at that work and that being a self-portrait of someone who was so young at that time, what, 21 at that time, you know, how kind of, she must have been so secure with herself in a way. Um, It's such an interesting work. But then I'm also intrigued by her work actually documenting someone like Max Ernst and actually the, um, the bird superior portrait of Max Ernst because actually... In a way, I know much of her work is very autobiographical as well, yet she kind of documents herself in this particular work as the horse, which can be seen in two different areas. It can be seen as this kind of trapped iced horse, but it could also be this trapped um, horse and this lantern. So I'm, in, I'm interested, I guess, to know what was her relationship actually like with him? Because from what it looks like as well, and Lee Miller's photographs as well from that time, he looks like he's quite possessive of her. Yeah, I think uh, he was um, he was very much in love. I mean, I think they were both very much mm. in love for much of their time. They left Paris after a few months in Paris and went to live in the south of France together and spent a wonderful summer there. Um, I think that uh, she was genuinely, to the end of her life, when I knew her, she was very grateful for what Max Ernst gave her. But again, because she self-defined as the independent woman she was, she never lost sight of herself in that relationship. Max knew a lot. He knew a lot about art. He knew a lot about artistic techniques. He knew a lot about the way you live as an artist. And all of that she learned from him. Yeah, I kind of think of them, and I sort of talk in the book about this, as them kind of entwined together. There's a Max Ernst painting I found that shows two horses kind of entwined together. Mm. And you don't really know where one stops and the other starts. And I kind of think of that as being Leonora and Max's relationship. So then in 1939, World War II breaks out. I mean, what happens? Do they remain together? Does everything fall apart? Well, they were already living in the south of France by the time war broke out. And they were in the area of France that became Vichy France. So it's still run by the French, ostensibly. And Max was um, imprisoned as an enemy alien because he was German and this was Vichy France. The upshot was that he was taken away and he was um, imprisoned and that was a very difficult time for Leonora, but then he was returned, he was released. Yeah. And he went back to the house in uh, Saint-Martin-Dardèche where they were living together and for a time I think they were happy there again. And then a second time Max Ernst was arrested and that, I'm afraid, is when Leonora really it was very difficult for her to cope. She was uh, really devastated and um, 
she she just found it very difficult to cope. Um, she describes in some of her writing how she just I think she says she sort of walks around aimlessly and she and she just can't make sense of of she doesn't know how she's going to go on really. And at that point, a friend of hers turns up, uh, another artist who's driving through France, and she's on her way to Spain. Her friend, his, whose name is Catherine Yarrow, and she persuades Leonora to go with her because she genuinely is very upset by how she finds her and she doesn't want to leave her all on her own so she persuades her to come with her now Leonora at this point is uh, very torn because she doesn't know if she's ever going to see Max Ernst again she doesn't know if he's going to survive the war and he's gone and this might be the last opportunity she has to get out of France yeah and you know the Nazis are coming so it's only a question of time. So I think it's completely understandable that she decides to go with Catherine Yarrow to um, Spain. But she was clearly really torn about leaving the house, which she shared with Max, because if he ever did get back, get out of prison, that's where he would come to. Um, so she sold the house, took as many paintings as she could take and left and uh, travelled with her friend Catherine in this small car right down to the Pyrenees. Then they had a bit of difficulty getting across the Pyrenees and into Spain, but they managed it, I think, with a bit of help, actually, interestingly, from her family. Wow. Yeah, because you can imagine, like in Lancashire, her family were very, very worried. Yeah. And my father, who was uh, young at the time, remembers, you know, they the remembered um, the worry that there was. You can imagine, like, this one young woman. I mean, obviously, they'd had their troubles with her, but they didn't want her to be, you know, killed by the Nazis. Or, mm. And I think they tried their best to help her. So she got across into Spain, and then she got herself to Madrid, and there she ended up staying with family friends. And she had another breakdown. Yeah. She was in a very difficult situation and obviously took a huge toll on her mental health. And the family who she was staying with uh, sort of tricked her. Um, said that they were going for a few days away in the north of Spain, but actually they were taking her to Santander to admit her to an asylum. But what they didn't know was that the doctor who ran the asylum was doing uh, experiments into what would later be electroconvulsive therapy. So she was given drugs that led her to have fits. Oh my God. I mean, but some, some of her work at this point, so I'm thinking of Do You Know My Aunt Eliza, which is from 1941, which is a kind of drawing from this time. It's in the Tate Collection and it just is, I guess, different from the work that she was making in Paris. It's super dark. It's, you know, almost haunting as well. It's like this kind of horse um, skull um, kind of lost in this cross-hatched um, work. I mean, it's, it's really, really haunting. Is that a kind of testament to actually how she was feeling at that time? Yeah, I think she was in a very, very difficult um, situation and, and really feeling abandoned and just no idea how things were going to turn around for her. It was a very, very difficult moment in her family. Now, really keen to get her back, yeah. um, sent the uh, family nanny on a warship to try and bring her back. And years later, when I knew her in Mexico, she still rather resented that none of them came themselves. So it was a bit of a, as Leonora said, when, when I was talking to her about it, you know, it was a bit of a shock for Nanny to yeah. suddenly find herself in this situation. But anyway, she turned up in Santander and tried to persuade Leonora to go back to Lancashire. And Leonora was definitely not going to do that. Mm. And yet, you know, you you can imagine that if she'd if she decided at that point, oh, well, actually, you know, I'll just wait out the war. She could have gone back to Lancashire. She would have been 
looked after, there was money, there was comfort. But no, she was not going back. She had, again, a very stark choice, as she did many times in her life. She could have gone back to this comfortable life, even temporarily, or she was just on her own. She managed somehow, after the nanny had gone back to uh, Lancashire, she managed to escape from the asylum, which is a little bit hazy exactly how she did that, but she managed to get away from the <laughs> asylum. It was um, winter time, and she got the train to Madrid and her life, like the countryside around her, must have looked just so bleak at that moment. She had no income anymore, no source of income. She had no lover anymore. She had no friends anymore. She had no family anymore. She was totally on her own. She had no idea how she was going to escape from Europe and Hitler. And she was terrified by him as well as wanting to get away from her family. So she ends up back in Madrid and uh, she's in a hotel bar in Madrid and really has no idea how her life's going to pan out. She's got nothing. She can see no way out. I mean, really, really bleak moment. And Across the bar, she sees this man who she had been introduced to by Picasso in Paris. He's a Mexican poet um, who also worked as a diplomat in Paris. He's called Renato Le Duc, and he's getting out of Europe, which is obviously the sensible thing to do as this is war raging. Uh, and he's heading back across Europe and he's planning to leave Lisbon by ship to go to New York and then on down to Mexico. It's easy for him to leave, of course, because he's Mexican. Leonora tells him her story. And he says, well, I've got the solution. Marry me and we'll leave together. You'll then be my wife. Your father won't have any influence over you anymore. And we'll travel together to, to Mexico. And uh, she immediately grasps this opportunity. They leave Madrid separately and go to Lisbon. And in Lisbon, they're going to get married and then travel from Lisbon to New York. However, an extraordinary thing happens. One day, there, there are a few weeks when there, obviously there's a lot of paperwork to be done. There's a lot of downtime. Leonora spends a lot of time wandering around Lisbon. Um, and one day, she's in a, in a square in Lisbon. And who does she see across the square? No. Max Ernst. <laughs> and of course, she doesn't even know if he's still alive. Yeah. And oh she doesn't gosh. know if she's ever going to see him again. And she doesn't know what's happened to him in the interim. And suddenly, he's right there. But she, of course, is now with Renato Ludu. Um, and they're married. Well, they're going to get married. Yeah. They weren't quite married at that stage, but they were very soon afterwards. And he is not on his own either. Oh, no. He is now with Peggy Guggenheim. Peggy Guggenheim, the uh, art collector who met Max for the first time in Paris with Leonora. Oh, wow. When they lived there together. While a lot was happening to Leonora that I've been telling you about, a lot was also happening to Max in that time. So yeah. we last saw him being taken off to a prison camp. He had at one point looked as if he was going to be deported back to Germany. And he really, you know, it was on a knife edge. And it was extraordinary that he got away from that. It was just by somebody helping him to get on the wrong, in inverted commas, train, which was actually the right train to get away from the train that was going east. Yeah. So he went west and he escaped. What did Leonora do when she met Max? Well, she was startled, very surprised took it absolutely in her stride in an extraordinary way for such a young woman. But clearly it was a tumultuous moment because she obviously still loved him. I mean, she I think she always loved Max. You know, he, he was really important to her life. And really what Leonora said was, you know, love has to take a back seat because the most important thing in our lives is that we're alive, right? Yeah. So they had to remain pragmatic. They had these two people who were kind of their tickets out. So they stayed with their new partners 
and Leonora and Renato set off on a ship. And I think the next day or a couple of days later, the plane took off with um, Peggy and Max. So what happens then when they arrive on that ship and they arrive in New York? For the next few months, really all the Surrealists were gathering in New York. So the scene of Surrealism shifted, if you like. Mm. They'd gone from Paris, they'd gone from Europe. They were now all in New York. And there was a lot happening there. It was an exciting time. And this was the time when Leonora and Max could have got back together. And I think that Leonora knew that being the wife or the partner of a much uh, more famous, older male artist would not be very good for her. And in fact, Max and Peggy went away from New York for a few days and that it was during their absence that Leonora and Renato left New York as well and drove down to Mexico. And they, uh, Leonora and Max, never met again. And so what was Mexico like for her? I mean, this was 1942 in Mexico. I mean, was it like anywhere she'd ever seen before? How I always think of it is, you know, from her earliest time, she was getting away to be the person she was. And I think when she got to New York, she just had to keep on going to just get to the end of the road, Mm. whatever the end of the road was. And you can tell, I'm sure, from everything I've said about already, she was someone who was happy to embrace the unknown and just go out there and see what life held. And so going to Mexico kind of took that to its final conclusion. Um, And she landed up in Mexico, this place where there was a whole new world of colours and ideas and life swirling around. She was immediately fascinated by things like the markets. I mean, the markets in Mexico City, you know, they look just like um, piled high with kind of um, plants and herbs and masks and, you know, Mayan. I mean, they're, they're extraordinary. They're not like anything Leonora would have ever or I, you know, ever seen before. But in an interesting way, Mexico almost seems this, without really actually intentionally being it like this way, quite surrealist. Oh, yeah. Mexico was, is a very surreal place. And, um, Especially and Andre, with the kind of myths and stories and Day of the Dead and all these kind of things. Totally. Different... I mean, mm. it's, Andre Breton had already been there by then and said that it's the most surreal country on the planet. And of course, the great thing about Leonora ending up there is it's just completely by chance. Yeah. And everything that happened yeah. to Leonora was, you know, by, well... She was driving the getting away, but where she was going, where it was taking her, was all organic and by chance. So there's no way she planned to go to Mexico. And there she was. And as you say, in this perfect, most ideal surroundings and, you know, Mexico just there couldn't have been a better place for Leonora. And when she got there, did she was she able to kind of resume painting straight away? She was able to um, paint, I think. She arrived there with a new husband, Renato Leduc. Um, And he started to, you know, he hadn't been in Mexico for a while because he'd been living in Paris. So he kind of took up his old life. He was older than her, but not as much older as Max was, but quite a bit older than her. And he, not surprisingly, wanted to look up his old friends and, and go back to his old life. And I think you know, we've talked a bit about patriarchy and the difficulties yeah. for women like Leonora. And Renato Leduc, he was re-immersing himself into that uh, life and spending a lot of time with his male friends. And Leonora felt neglected and ignored. So she decided that she was going to get away herself. Well, she just started going out actually on her own, which was not something Mexican women did. You know, they didn't head off to bars and cantinas on yeah. their own. But Leonora, of course, did because she she wasn't uh, bothered about convention or the way women were supposed to behave. So she met a new group of friends and they were like her, emigres from Europe, artists. 
and they were the people who were really going to be the, the important people for the rest of her life. This is Remedius Varro, this is Katy Horner, who are sort of pioneering women artists in an interesting way. You know, actually, when I was younger, looking at Leonora Carrington's work, I wasn't actually aware that she was from Britain. I actually thought she was Mexican because that they were the Mexican surrealists. And they completely kind of changed the face of Mexican art in the 20th century. Yeah, so uh, Leonora arrived in a Mexico that was actually a very interesting place from an art historical perspective because it was the time of the muralists and, you know, huge works were being done by people like Diego Rivera, you know, who was trying to sort of paint the whole of Mexican history mm. and doing it very successfully. And at the time, you know, his wife, Frida Kahlo, I mean, she used to make, she used to effectively make his sandwiches and, and go and take them. You know, he was the artist. She was, she yeah, was wow. doing her stuff, but, but nobody at the time was thinking that Frida would end up the person who, you know, the world knew of as the artist. Diego was a giant. And the work that was going on, certainly the muralist work, was very, very different from anything Leonora or her friends were doing. And in a way, what happened to her from an artistic point of view was she lands up in this place where there's a lot of interesting things happening from an, an art history point of view. But she really comes in with all her ideas from Europe. So she paints and then she starts, you know, a lifetime of painting in Mexico which is really going to draw very heavily on her childhood and on everything that's happened to her up to this moment. So her, her art is going to draw very heavily on her Lancashire upbringing, which we've talked about. It's going to draw very heavily on her Irish heritage. It's going to draw very heavily on what's happened to her through the war and particularly the horrors of this time in the asylum. It's not ever going to draw so much on uh, Mexico, although Mexico does come into her work in many interesting ways. And she also fuses often Mexican imagery with imagery from the past. One example of that, which is a painting I'm very fond of, is a painting called Grandmother Moorhead's Aromatic Kitchen. And that's the uh, kitchen of uh, Leonora's grandmother, my great grandmother in Moat in County Westmeath. And older members of my family even now remember this kitchen it's got a very very big uh, oven stove in the middle of it and Leonora has uh, Mexican corn and peppers and Mexican vegetables around but also she's got you know this is in her grandmother's kitchen in, in Ireland so she's fusing the ideas from these very different times of her life but I think the way I often say it when I'm telling people about her is it was as if you know she arrived in Mexico with a very full suitcase to unpack yeah and she was going to unpack that suitcase on her canvases for the next 70 years she came armed with a lot of experiences and a lot of things that were going to inform her art and and Mexico, of course, was hugely rich and there was masses going on, but she kind of got so much already. Does that mm. make sense? You know what I mean? Totally, totally. But it is so interesting, actually, how she is referencing her childhood so much, considering the fact that she despised it. She despised this family. She didn't want to go. She never wanted to go back there. And that work, Crookie Hall from 1947, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. And I, I'm sure, you, you know, like you said, with the kitchen, it's that that was her house and it had all these kind of dreamlike figures swarming in and out people who she'd met in her dreams and and she famously said you know does anyone ever escape their childhood you know I, I don't think we do do you actually think that she was always maybe even pining after that childhood I don't think she was trying to relive it and I think she really knew she had to escape from it but I think that um 
it was really a question of she couldn't do it with her family, but she couldn't actually live without them either. Uh, she'd hate me for saying that in one sense, because she absolutely lived her whole life proving that she could live without us. But actually, she couldn't live without us. It makes me quite emotional to think about it. But she couldn't live without us because she needed the input that she got from her family to become the artist she could be. So it was all just too connected. This was just such a massive thing in her life, this separating from her family, that she had to go on trying to work it out, I think, all her life, uh, on her canvases, in her writing as well, you know. And so then in 2006, when you come along and you reach out, how does she react to that? It was quite a scary moment for me. And I, and I now, looking back, I can't really believe, or I find it hard to believe that I actually, you know, dared to do it. Um, because I really didn't, I'd never had a conversation with her. I'd been in touch with her gallery, the people, the gallery that represented her in Mexico City. And somebody from the gallery, when they were next seeing her, had said, oh, by the way, Leonora, you know, we've had a phone call from a cousin of yours who's in Mexico City anyway. I mean, obviously that was a lie. I wasn't in Mexico City <laughs> anyway at all. Uh, would it be okay? Could she come around for tea? I got a message back to say, well, you know, Leonora says if you're in town anyway and she's feeling up to it, you know, she'll have tea with you. So I was given a phone number and told that I could call her after 10 a.m. So I flew to Mexico City, having had to set up quite complicated <laughs> arrangements for my many daughters, you know, to be looked after while I was away, really not knowing if she was going to see me. And in fact, I know my father was quite worried about it. And also some of my cousins said, you know, be prepared. She might not want to see you. She's gone a very long way to get away from her family. You know, why do you think she's going to also, welcome how, you? Also, how old was she at this point? She was about 89. Wow. Yeah, so she was, uh, yes... Uh, getting on and uh, so I arrived in Mexico City I was uh, on the first morning they'd said don't call her before 10 so at one minute past 10 I dialed her <laughs> number she answered the phone immediately like uh, the first ring she answered the phone and the funny thing was as soon as I heard her voice I kind of felt like I'd always known her her voice was very distinctive she still had uh, you know she spoke in a way that posh northern people know how that we all speak the same <laughs> way. You know, she, she had this kind of, there's a bit of northern in there and she still had that. She was still absolutely English voice. And, uh, and she answered the phone and she said two things to me during that conversation. I said, oh, I'm, I'm your cousin from England, Joanna Moorhead. You know, I think that someone from the gallery said I might call. And she said, oh, yes, she said. And then she said, I've been waiting for you to call. And I wondered afterwards, what did she mean by that? Did she just mean, because it was only one minute past 10, you know, and I'd been told to call after 10. So I don't think she'd been sitting there all morning waiting for me to call. Did she mean she'd been waiting for somebody to turn up from her family for all these years? Anyway, the next thing she said was uh, even better in a way, because she said, so um, when do I see you? She said, are you going to come straight over? Are you just, why just, just come over now? So half an hour later, I was on her doorstep and I didn't really leave that house for the whole of the next week. I just spent it in Leonora's kitchen, hearing her story, getting to know her, finding out, you know, who she was and why. And do you think it was emotional for her to reconnect with someone from her family? I don't know if it was emotional. I think that w one of the things I remember from the very beginning, from when I first saw her on the doorstep, so I said to her, I obviously knew who she was, her, Yolanda, her housekeeper, opened the door and then Leonora walked out of along the corridor dressed as she often always was, all in black. And I said, Prim. And she said, I'm not Prim anymore. 
I'm Leonora. And I realized that she had, she had, you know, she wasn't prim anymore. She'd made herself into somebody else. That's why she'd had to leave our family. She wasn't prim. So I'd always called her prim up to that point because wow. everybody in our family yeah. called her prim. But I never, ever called her prim ever again mm. um, because I really respected. And I think that was that was very important for me that I was respecting who she'd become. And I didn't yet know why she'd gone. I didn't know emotionally why she'd gone. I didn't know the whole story, but I always respected that she had gone. From that first moment, uh, what I realised was that she was interested in me and the stories I could tell her, as well as as me being very interested in her. Because imagine, I mean, we can't really, can we? But imagine if you'd been separated from your family, effectively, for 70 years. Yeah. I mean, she hadn't much been in touch. I mean, she'd heard about things like her brother's deaths and she knew, you know, that they'd been married and had children. But she, you know, she she didn't, for example, know who aunts had married or cousins, what had happened. So she was interested. And we both come from the same sort of, you know, the same sort of place and the same kind of, well, obviously the same family. My father, like her father, was a textile mill owner. Uh, my granny, who was her aunt, had actually been her friend from childhood. Almost everybody, when I was researching her story, I realised that almost everybody she knew was either my relative on my granny's side, it's not related to Leonora, mm. but or, or or our joint relatives. So her life, and this is very true of Northern Catholic families, you know, they're quite a tightly knit group. Yeah. And that's another thing that I realised that art history hadn't really understood about her. That, uh, you know, it wasn't as if she was born into some cold or uncaring family of aristocrats. I mean, that isn't our story at all. Um, you know, we're a very warm and caring family, but the expectations were not something she could live with. But that's almost harder in a way, kind of leaving a family who were that warm and, you know, had that comfort. But it's been really interesting. I've watched some of the footage that when you've interviewed her I mean first of all she sounds absolutely hilarious yeah. <laughs> there's one moment when you're talking to her and you're asking about if there's been any other artists in the family so oh but my mother for, she used to paint um, biscuit tins for the jumble sale <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just like what I mean it's totally yeah. kind of totally random and crazy but also um footage of her kind of having like magnets of princess diana and the queen and everything on her fridge and mm. there was definitely and her strong british accent mm. um there must have been that longing for that britishness i mean also because mexico is worlds away from the uk we don't have the climate we don't have the history it's it is a completely new world in a way so mm. it's interesting that she also fuses that again with her paintings as well yeah, and I mean, Mexico, remember at the time she went there, I mean, it really was a long way from Britain. She didn't like flying either. And I think she did kind of hanker after Britain and particularly at the very end of her life when I knew her, when it was pretty obvious she wasn't going to get back. And in fact, in her own um, story, um, The Hearing Trumpet, her novella, um, the, her longest bit of writing, uh, the character who is clearly her talks about how she hankers after going back to, to the north, going back to uh, the place that she comes from, going back to Europe. But uh, she used to say that she would have liked to have gone back to Paris, I think. By the time I knew her, she knew that she wasn't going to get back. Interesting, though, because those places would have changed so much. You know, I'm sure the war changed so many different places. Paris certainly wasn't the mm. same as the, in the 50s than it was in the 30s. Mm. Um, in terms of her recognition, was she, during her life, was she successful commercially? By the time I knew her, her work was selling. 
you know, was was selling significantly. I think in the in the, she was still alive the first time a painting by her was sold um, at auction in New York for more than a million wow. US dollars. And I remember when that painting was sold calling her up and saying oh my goodness you know it's amazing to sell a painting for this amount you're in a a tiny category of of women artists and she said say that again did you say and I said women artists and she said oh I thought you said artists because she didn't want to be categorized as a woman artist she wanted to be categorized as an artist because that's what she was and was she painting right up until the end of her life well when I knew her she wasn't really painting anymore so there were some paintings in the house. Most of her paintings had been sold because she'd had to sell them to survive because she'd never really got any money from her family. And she had been the breadwinner in her family. And something else that we should probably say is that she didn't stay with Renato Leduc. Okay. So she went to Mexico with him, but she, she left him. And uh, in that circle of emigre artists, she met the man who was going to become her substantive husband. Uh, and that was a guy called Cheeky. Vice, and he was a Jewish Hungarian, um, and with him she had two sons, um, who are alive today and living in Mexico and the U.S. And she had a close family life that she hadn't had in her own childhood. Do you think at this point as well she felt like Mexico was really her place? Because I mean, we talked about at the beginning how she was this outsider, and do you think she really kind of found herself with this place? Actually, no, I don't think that she ever really felt that she was of Mexico. Yeah. She was always an outsider in Mexico. She never was an insider anywhere in her life. I heard Tony Penrose say once, and I think this is true, the only place that Leonora possibly felt she belonged was within surrealism. But actually, you know what? As I say that, I can hear her saying, no, I didn't. <laughs> and I remember her once saying, do you think I read the, the Surrealist Manifesto? Of course I didn't read it. You know, she, she just was not interested in being inside anything. Yeah. She was just she was the most present person I've ever known. So she was just she was here now. She would just be here now, you know, in the moment. Mm. And as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we always ask our guests, if Leonora were alive today, would you say anything to her or ask her something? I would say thank you. And I I couldn't say a big enough thank you to Leonora. What what she has given my life is um the thing I always say is if I made a tiny bit of difference to Leonora's life then I'm beyond thrilled. But she completely changed my life, knowing her. She was just, you know, she's, she was just such an, she was an extraordinary woman um, and but that just doesn't quite do it justice. She showed me a way of being that has completely changed my life. Amazing. Thank you so much, Joanna, for coming on the podcast today. It was really good fun. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening to the sixth episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Joanna Moorhead. It was so fascinating to hear about Leonora Carrington's life story and how much it had an impact on her fantastically surreal paintings. I urge you all to look up Leonora's fantastic works. And if you want to witness them in the flesh, you can head to the Met in New York to see Self-Portrait, In of the Dawn Horse. And for those in the UK, you can find that portrait of Max Ernst, currently on display at the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art. This podcast was sound edited by the excellent Teddy Clifford. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be very grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Hold up. 
Just this past October, our wonderful sponsor, the Affordable Art Fair, celebrated their 20th anniversary in style, back where it all began in Battersea Park in London. And wow, what a selection of artworks they had on view, from prints, paintings, sculptures and ceramics, and a lot of women, I may add. If you missed out on this year's edition, or like me, are still dreaming about that perfect artwork that got away, then do not worry. Head online to browse the same hand-picked selection of emerging and established living artists as you'd find at the fair. Discover the joy of collecting art on affordableartfair.com and thank you so much to our sponsor, the Affordable Art Fair, for making this podcast possible.